What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Perhaps the most important question you could answer this Christmas, every Christmas, is that question. What child is this? What child are we talking about? Who, who is this really about beneath the tradition and the frenzy of activity that happens at Christmas time and the power outages and everything else? Who is this about? Is this child some historical figure? Is it just a cute story that never happened? Is this a legend that the early church made up? Is this somebody who was a wise Jewish rabbi? He had a lot of good insight. Is this somebody who is an example of how to love others? Who is this child? At the very center of this thing we call Christmas. Again, I, I think that question is the most important question you could answer, not just at Christmas time, but in your whole life. And the, the hymn that I quoted from, What Child Is This, by William Chatterson Dix, written in the 19th century, he answers the question. In the chorus, he says, This, this is Christ the King. This is Christ the King, whom angels sing, and shepherds guard, except in reverse order. Shepherds guard, angels sing. This is who we're talking about here. Now, the, the claim of the first followers of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, their claim is not that this child was a, a good example, a teacher, but that he was a king, Christ the King. You know, that, that word Christ, it means Messiah in Hebrew, Christos in Greek, it means Messiah. And Messiah, throughout the Old Testament scriptures and in the Hebrew imagination, Messiah meant the anointed king. So whenever we say Jesus Christ, we are actually making a profound statement. When we say that, when we sing that, we are joining with the first followers of Jesus and echoing what men and women throughout history have said, which is Jesus is the king. Now, if the most important question we could ever answer is what child is this who's on Mary's lap is sleeping? What child is this? Maybe the second most important question we could answer is what kind of a king is this? If this child is Christ the king, what kind of a king? Because if you look at history or our world today or you watch The Crown on Netflix, you, you know, there are many different types of kings, right? Some are benevolent, some are harsh, some are powerful, some are weak, some rule for decades, others for mere moments. God came into history in the person of Jesus as a king, but what kind of a king is he? Well, Matthew, who wrote the first gospel in our New Testament, he answers that in a very interesting way. In Matthew 2, verse 1, this is the first verse after Jesus was born. This is what he says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Now, this phrase, during the time of King Herod, is very intentional. 
by the author. This is not here by accident. Matthew is putting, God through Matthew is putting these two kings on the same stage together at the same time to show us something. Christ the king and Herod the king. Matthew is putting them both front and center for a very specific reason. Why? To show us that King Jesus and King Herod are radically different from one another. And that King Jesus is unlike any other king that has ever been or that will ever be. And we're going to see that in a few really profound ways during our time together. When Jesus was born, King Herod was actually living in one of the biggest palaces in the world. He, he was on the throne for 37 years. And for 37 years, he went on a massive building campaign. This guy had enormous amounts of money. He had armies of slaves who he charged with all kinds of tasks. King Herod, he built a harbor, multiple theaters, temples, a stadium, multiple fortresses, and nine palaces for himself. Eight wasn't enough. He said, I got to have a ninth palace. Now, the, the, the palace that he built for himself outside of Jerusalem was one of his largest. And I want to show you a picture of it. This is actually a picture of King Herod's palace that has been reconstructed, the original burned down in 66 AD. But this is King Herod's palace. The walls of his palace were nearly 50 feet high. There were sections of the palace that were 22 stories high. It had multiple banquet halls, towers, fountains, rooms for hundreds of guests. You know, Josephus, who was a historian in the first century, he said of Herod's palace that it baffled all description. And that in extravagance, no building surpassed it. I mean, the biggest homes in our country today are in Hollywood. They're around 10 to 15,000 square feet. The biggest home in Hollywood has 20,000 square feet. King Herod's palace was 435,000 square feet. And some people argue it was actually a million because the 435 doesn't take into account the multiple stories and levels, etc. So this is a, just an enormous undertaking to build this. Now, this palace that you're looking at, it was only a few miles from Bethlehem. And so it's not unlikely that Mary and Joseph would have passed by King Herod's palace on their way to Bethlehem. Can you picture the scene? Mary has Christ the king in her womb. And she walks by King Herod's palace on her way to a town of around 300 people. And when she gets there, there is no palace waiting for them. Nobody's waiting for them. In fact, there's no room anywhere. You know, oftentimes we think about the nativity, the birth of Jesus happening in a barn. It was much more likely that it happened in a cave. A cramped, dirty, dark, smelly cave. That's where King Jesus was born. So the first contrast we've got to see between these two kings, and this is so powerful when you think about this and let this sink in, 
King Herod lived in a palace. King Jesus was born in a cave. King Herod lived in a palace. King Jesus was born in a cave. Now just think about this. God chose to put his son not in the palace, but in the cave. What does that say about God? What does that say about Jesus? It says a lot of things. But one thing stands out to me when you think about that image, and it's this, that God truly is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. You know, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, he looked down the corridor of time, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, he says this, and Benjamin read from it a moment ago. Isaiah, he says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's true. Listen, God really is with us. Even from his first breaths, Jesus, he, he, he came out of the womb grasping for air like all babies do, but he was not in a warm, temperature-controlled delivery room. He was in a cave. And he was not laid on a plush baby blanket. He was laid in a feeding trough. And this is emblematic of how Jesus' whole life would be. Listen, Jesus spent his first few years as a refugee. He came back to Nazareth, a tiny town where he probably lived in grinding poverty. He grew up as an adult. He was despised and rejected, and he died with nothing. Listen, the last possession Jesus owned was taken from him, his cloak, and he died naked. Now, what difference does that make? That, that Jesus was born in a cave, that, that this is the kind of God who came to us, Emmanuel. It, it, it means that our king did not exempt himself from brokenness. He didn't float above it. He immersed himself in it. And here's what that means for you and for me. There is no cave in your life that is foreign to Jesus. I mean, Understand, Jesus knows what it's like to be in a cave. He was born in it. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it's like to be anxious. He knows what it's like to watch people make decisions that break your heart. Jesus, he knows what it's like to be lonely, to be depressed. There is no cave in your experience that is foreign to Jesus. This is so powerful when we let it sink in. Truly, he is God with us. And not us somewhere out there, us in here, you. Because of Christmas, he is with us. Now, Matthew goes on and he, he talks about how the Magi, these astrologers from the east, how they, they came to Jerusalem and they they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then Matthew says that when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. 
Now this word for disturbed, it means greatly troubled or distressed. Might be how you felt at three in the morning when your power went off last night. Just greatly distressed. And it's not just Herod, it's all Jerusalem. Now why? Why is Jerusalem distressed? King Herod was notoriously jealous, neurotic, paranoid about losing his power. He killed thousands of people during his reign that he viewed as a threat, including members of his own family. In fact, Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, he once said, I would rather be Herod's swine than his family because pigs have a better chance of living. This is why all of Jerusalem is disturbed because King Herod was a disturbed man. And so Herod, he asks, you know, where is this baby? Where's the Messiah going to be born? And the teachers of the law who are with him, they say Bethlehem. And then they quote to King Herod a prophecy out of Micah. And here's what that prophecy says. It says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what's interesting about this prophecy is it doesn't just say that the Messiah will come and rule over Israel. It says how the Messiah will rule. The Messiah, when he appears, Micah says hundreds of years before Christ, the Messiah will shepherd my people. Now, that is a stark contrast with the image of a ruler like Herod who ruled with an iron Fist. A shepherd cares for and protects their sheep. And Micah says, God says to the Old Testament, that is the kind of ruler that Jesus will be. And is it any surprise when Jesus, he shows up and he begins his public ministry, one of the first things he says in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the shepherd And Jesus didn't just say he was the good shepherd. He showed us what that looked like. When King Jesus has authority, when he's in charge, how does he lead? How does he rule? John the Baptist had just died. And for Jesus, this might have been the first significant grief that he ever had to face. You know, Jesus is called the man of sorrows. Was this the first true sorrow that he dealt with? It might have been. We're told that Mark 6, the disciples, they gather around, and I, I picture them saying, no, you tell him, no, you tell him. They didn't want to tell him. But, but they say, Jesus, John has died. He's been murdered. And this wasn't just a friend. This was family. I mean, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Maybe they were close. And and Jesus, at the time he hears this, he is busy serving the people. He's so busy, he doesn't even have a chance to eat, what Mark tells us in Mark 6. And so Jesus is exhausted, and now he's grieving. Some of you know what that's like. And in that moment, Jesus does what I think I would have done, what you would have done. He says, let's go away and get some rest. And so he gets his disciples, and they go across the lake in a boat, And as they're approaching the other side, they're trying to find a place where they can be alone, but they're not alone. Because as they approach the other side, they see crowds of people. 
Because news had traveled and people were so desperate to see Jesus, they went there anticipating his arrival. And so as Jesus pulls up, there are crowds of people waiting on him, watching for him, needing him. And then Jesus does what I would not have done. He does what very few of us would have done. Jesus does not say, hey, turn the boat around. Let's go somewhere else. Jesus, he does not send the crowd away. He does not say, hey, I'll get with you tomorrow. Now, Mark tells us what Jesus did in this moment. In Mark chapter 6, we read that when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Compassion on them. Why? Why? Well, Mark goes on and he says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is what Jesus saw. He saw people, and Matthew says that the people he saw were harassed and helpless. Another translation I read said that they were distressed and downcast. And he sees these people, and Jesus has this impulse inside of him to show compassion, to care for them, even though he's exhausted. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus expresses. You see, there is something motivating this king, this king, King Jesus, and it's not fear. It's love. And, and so this sharp contrast we see between Jesus and Herod, it's, it's this, that King Herod was ruled by fear, dominated. It controlled him. King Jesus rules with love. A completely different orientation to authority, to leadership. Now, why does this matter? you know, for, for you today. If this is true, then the posture of Jesus Christ, our King, the posture of Jesus towards you today is love. It's love. It's, it's compassion. Now, many of us, we, we, we gather here tonight and we say that, but very few of us see Jesus that way, see God that way. I mean, let me just ask you, if you're on the other side, if you're on the shore with all your brokenness and your neediness, in your dis- distressed and downcastness in the state you're in. And Jesus is coming across the lake, and you see him coming. And he's exhausted, and he's coming in, and you're there, and you're broken, and you're needy. What is the look on Jesus' face in that moment? How do you imagine Jesus? Is Jesus angry that you can't get it together Maybe he's not angry, but he's at least mildly annoyed that you keep needing him so much. Maybe he gets out of the boat, he wants to help you, but internally he wishes he was somewhere else. How do you see him? This example, and there's plenty in the Gospels, it shows us that the impulse in Jesus' heart, listen, when he looks on you in your broken state and on me, It's not judgment. The first impulse is what? It's love. It's compassion. Do you see him that way today? And this is important because many of us tonight even, we we are hurting. We are struggling. We're lonely. Maybe you're disoriented this Christmas and you're here, but you're like, God, I don't know where you are. How does God view you in your broken state? With compassion, He's a king who rules with love. Matthew goes on. We're going to see one more contrast. He he tells that when King Herod learned about this prophecy in the book of Micah, he calls the Magi, 
and he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for the child. Go. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, is that sincere? No. What is King Herod's motivation for finding out where this king is? It's to eliminate the threat. Because King Herod, he lived trying to avoid death. You know, scholars, they they talk about how remarkable it is that Herod stayed in power for 37 years in a culture where everybody was getting overthrown all the time by your brother, your uncle, your friend. This guy, he stays in power for 37 years. And, And part of the reason why was King Herod became an expert at winning the approval of people above him. When Rome was short on money, Herod, he helped raise money for them. Whenever there were uprisings against Rome, Herod would do what he could to squash the rebellion. And so while Herod made a lot of enemies, he made a lot of friends in high places. King Herod, he knew how to win friends and influence people, as the saying goes. And he knew how to use people. King Herod, he used people to help him maintain power because he would find out quickly about any unrest, any plots to overthrow him, and then he would snuff them out without blinking. He would eliminate whoever and whatever was a threat to his power. He was ruthless. One commentary said Herod was more interested in saving his throne than in saving his soul. And that sums up, really, King Herod's whole goal in life. It was to save his throne. It's how he stayed alive. But with King Jesus, we see a radically different path. A radically different trajectory. And in Matthew, he, he goes on and he talks about how the Magi went following the star and they arrive. And verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, in myrrh. Now, initially, these seem like some of the weirdest gifts that you could give to a family that just had a baby. I mean, I doubt any of you recently went to a baby shower and beforehand you were at Target and it was like, you know, honey, I'm really thinking about a bib and uh, a baby blanket, but I'm going with frankincense. I just have a feeling this is what they need. But we need to understand two things about these gifts that Jesus receives. First, these are not so much gifts for a newborn as they are offerings from foreign dignitaries. When diplomats visit other nations, even today, when they travel, they will often, as a sign of respect, bring a gift that represents the culture that they come from. And that's what's happening here, which tells us, by the way, these magi, they saw Jesus not as a cute baby, in a manger. They saw him as a king. This is what you do with a king. But the second thing that we need to see is that these gifts have incredible spiritual significance. The early church, as they looked back on on the early years of Jesus's life, and this may have happened when he was two, three, four years old, when he receives these gifts, the early church understood that there was a prophetic word being spoken over Jesus through these gifts. They're not just random items off of Mary's registry. 
There is incredible spiritual weight here. And the gold, the early church, they understood that the gold Jesus receives, it symbolizes his royalty. This is something you gave to a king. The frankincense, which was a rare, costly oil from a tree, it, frankincense was often associated with worship. And so the early church said, no, this, this symbolizes Jesus' divinity, that he's worthy of worship. And the myrrh, Myrrh was a spice from a bush in Arabia. Um, its most common use was with burial practices in that day. And so the earliest followers of Jesus, reflecting back on this, they said no, the myrrh symbolizes Jesus' death. And Jesus' death is at the very core of his mission. In fact, he told us why he came. Mark 10, 45, the son of man, Jesus is speaking. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, my life, as a ransom for many. The seeds of this idea that Jesus would die are there even in his birth from the very Beginning, And not just that Jesus would die any kind of death, he would die as a ransom for many. Not only would Jesus be the good shepherd, he would be the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. And this is radical. Listen, this is utterly different than King Herod's orientation, than any king's orientation throughout history. You see, King Herod, he lived trying to avoid death. King Jesus died to give us life. This is so different. King Jesus, he died to give us life. Listen, almost every king throughout history has used their power, their privilege, their position to protect themselves. Their kingship, most people, including Herod, their kingship is marked by self-protection, but Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, it's marked by self-giving love. And from the very beginning, this was signaled that, that Jesus would be unlike any other king. Not only would he be born in a cave, not only would he lead with love, he would give his life for the people that he loved. And he did. Now Jesus would be, and many of you, you know this, but Jesus later in his life, he would be tried unfairly and he would be sentenced to die in the most excruciating and humiliating way possible. Crucifixion. A criminal's death. And Jesus is very clear. Listen, he was not forced to die by the religious institution of the day or by the empire of Rome. No, he said in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep, and I lay it down. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So the question for us is, why? Why, Jesus? Why do this? Why die in this kind of a way? And the answer is simply, for us, for you and I, because through his death on the cross, we experience forgiveness and reconciliation with God forever. That same chapter, John chapter 10, Jesus, he says, I'm the good shepherd. You know what he says in that chapter also? He says, I came that they might have life and life to the full. Why did Jesus die? So that you 
and me could experience life, not just here and now, but forever in the presence of God. You know, the, the song I quoted from to begin our time, What Child Is This by William Chatterson Dix. Oftentimes we skip past the third verse, we rarely sing it, but this is what the third verse of the song is. And, and he wrote this song out of this text, by the way, out of Matthew chapter 2, reading it. The third verse of the song says, Nails fierce shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, obeyed the son of Mary. It was for you and it was for me. And we experience that, we receive that simply by trusting. By saying, Jesus, I trust, I, I, I believe and I accept who you are and that you did this for me. Now, what do we need to know today? What do you need to know, not just in your head, in your heart this Christmas, in the very center of your being, out of this text? Listen, King Herod and King Jesus are radically different from one another. Polar opposites. But not only is Jesus different from Herod, King Jesus is unlike any other king that has ever been or will ever be. There is no one like him, like our king, who became Emmanuel. He was born in a cave and he rules with love and he died for us. So how do we respond today? We, today we respond like the Magi. I want you to look at the text. What do the Magi do? On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. What did the Magi do? What do we do today? Two things. First, they saw the child. Do you know, we can go through the whole Christmas season and not see Jesus. We can so easily, we can go through the motions and this is what we do and we're with family and, and just miss the very center of it, which is Christ himself. And so, you know, tonight and tomorrow, let me just encourage you to remind your heart to see Jesus. And, you know, maybe you just pray tonight. So you go to bed and say, God, would you help me see? Would you help my heart be open to who Jesus is, really, and the difference that he makes? The Magi, they saw, but secondly, they, they worshiped. They bowed down and they worshiped this baby who was the king of the universe. And what, what is worship, by the way? Worship is simply saying, Jesus, you're worthy, and what I have is yours. Think of the magis. What I have, these gifts, it's, it's yours. And ultimately, this is the only way we can respond if we see. If you and I truly see our king who gave his life for us, the king who came, was born in a cave. We can only, the only way we can respond is say, Jesus, you're worthy. And what I have is yours. So this Christmas, what, what does that look like for you? Again, I, I think even for my own heart, it is so easy to move through the season and not spiritually slow down enough to ponder the, the, the weight of our King Jesus, that he came 
And as a result, everything's different. My life is different. And how am I letting that influence me today? How are you? Because what child is this? Again, what, what child? This is not merely a historical figure. This is not a great giver of advice. Like, hey, Jesus, thank you for the insight, the Bible. Appreciate it. This is not somebody who's a good example to follow. This is Christ the King. And we owe him everything. And so this Christmas, we just fall at his feet and we say, Jesus, you're worthy. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that truly you are unlike any king that has ever been or will ever be. And Lord, I, I pray that you would help all of us to work out the implications this Christmas. Lord, to, to, to reckon with the reality of our king who became flesh, who died in our place. Father, we now, in this moment, we just give you thanks. And Lord, with grateful hearts, we just respond and we, we praise you, we worship you. And Lord, I pray that this posture of thanksgiving, Lord, that it would characterize us as we leave this place tonight, tomorrow, Lord, that we would just have thankfulness in our hearts and on our lips, Lord, that we would say, Jesus, thank you. So we sing now and we do this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.